Coming up today, fellowshipping with AFA staff and like-minded believers. It is a beautiful, rolling hills, southern hospitality, wonderful food, place to just retreat and relax and really just get away from the world for a little while. Then we'll look at the social media company that's leaving the door open for sexual exploitation. They can access children on these mainstream platforms where children hang out. And George Barna explains how to raise spiritual champions. Those first 13 years of life are really where we determine who's this person going to be for their duration on the planet. It's the weekend of February 3rd and 4th. I'm Jeff Shambly, and this is The Stand Radio. Does the idea of a quiet, peaceful getaway appeal to you? (laughs) That may seem like a no-brainer, but that's exactly what some of you may be experiencing this April. Chelsea Wildman is here to tell us about the upcoming AFA Retreat. Hi, Chelsea. Hi, thank you so much for having me. So what is the AFA Retreat and what's in store for people who want to go? Yes, so the AFA Retreat is in Sylacauga, Alabama at the Purcell Farms Resort. It is a beautiful rolling hills, southern hospitality, wonderful food, place to just retreat and relax and really just get away from the world for a little while. That sounds great. What is your favorite part of this and it must be a blast to be able to organize it. I will say that. It is. It is. <laughs> I, I love organizing this event every year. Um, we have a lot of people return, and it's so fun to see, you know, just the positive feedback. Um, nothing from, from myself, of course, but just, you know, it's so great to get around people of like-mindedness and to dig into the Word and enjoy being around other AFA followers. So that's really my favorite part. Yeah, I was going to say that, you know, even in Sherathon, we love meeting. AFA supporters, mm-hmm. and that's got to be one of the highlights of this. Absolutely. So tell us about the special guests and who will people be hearing speak when they go? Yes. So on our lineup of speakers, we have um, Bishop E.W. Jackson. We have Jenna Ellis. We have Rob West, Ray Pritchard, um, and then all of our leadership on staff here at AFA. So you'll see Tim and Buddy and Ed and um, Wesley and Walker. How many people can you accommodate in an event like this? Yes. So we usually have around 150. Okay. um, And actually, we just have a handful of rooms left. Okay. Well, I was going to ask you about that. So we're about two months away. So what can people do to find out more about uh, going, more information? Please visit afaretreat.net. Okay. You can visit that link or you can give me a phone call, 1-800-326-326. Four five four three extension three four five. Sounds good. AFAretreat.net. Sounds yes. great. Chelsea, thanks for joining us. Thank you so much. Sexual abuse and exploitation affects people from all walks of life, especially the weakest among us. One of the leading organizations fighting against this abuse is the National Center on Sexual Exploitation. Now, in recent days, they've been holding Meta accountable for what they allow on their platforms. Meta, of course, is the parent company of Facebook, Instagram, and WhatsApp. Haley McNamara is vice president with the National Center on Sexual Exploitation, and she's with us today to tell us the latest. Welcome, Haley. 
Hi, thanks so much for having me. Now, Meta was placed on your 2023 Dirty Dozen list of mainstream contributors to sexual exploitation. Tell us why. So, Meta is a problem on many, many stances. As you said, it's a parent company for many other corporations, and it has consistently failed to have meaningful policies that are preventing or intervening, especially on issues like child sexual exploitation. Okay. So they, we think that they could be doing much better. So one of the things that you have mentioned is the introduction of end-to-end encryption. Tell us what that is uh, for the average listener. Yes, so end-to-end encryption is um, a type of encryption that essentially ensures that there's data privacy um, and does a lot of positive things for making sure that platforms can't steal or sell some of your information, which sounds like a great thing. But the problem is that it also makes it impossible to scan for or identify child sexual abuse materials, Mm -hmm. sometimes called child pornography, or grooming and sex trafficking that's happening on these platforms. At least that's the way that the way that they're implementing it is preventing that from happening. Now, the National Center on Sexual Exploitation has been in contact with Meta. Are they listening to some of your concerns, and have they made any changes? They have made some changes recently. So most recently, they've started to proactively prevent teens ages 13 to 15 from seeing sexually explicit content and um, protecting all teens from harmful subjects um, such as suicide ideation and eating disorders. Mm -hmm. So this is positive. That's a step forward. But it's interesting, you know, the big problem is this end-to-end encryption. You know, the National Center on Missing and Exploited Children estimates that, you know, millions and millions of child sexual abuse cases will now be left in the dark. Law enforcement won't know about them. Those children won't be identified and won't be rescued. Um, And while these steps forward um, on preventing some of the harmful content children see on the platform is positive, it's interesting that they aren't doing that for all teenagers. Why only 15 and under? I don't think that suicide ideation or explicit content is healthy or helpful for any teenager. So so that's something else that we still have some continued concerns with them about. And, and no comments from them as to what the difference is between a 16-year-old and a 15-year-old when it comes to looking at some of this. No, not at all. Yeah, okay. Yeah. Give us an idea of how popular these platforms are, uh, including Facebook, Instagram, WhatsApp, among traffickers and groomers. Uh, did they rely on these kinds of platforms? Yeah, unfortunately. You know, people will think that child sexual abuse material and sex trafficking, that it only happens on the dark web. But unfortunately, the nature of these crimes is that they need access to children, and they can access children on these mainstream platforms where children hang out. So um, whether that's, you know, Facebook or Instagram or WhatsApp. And so, unfortunately, we do know that this is a really significant problem. Um, in many ways, they're really having a I, you see no evil, yeah. hear no evil, know no evil policy by making it impossible for them to actually scan and recognize that this abuse is going on on their platform. You know, there are significant privacy concerns with any Internet activity. When we want to trade financial information or legal information, we want to ensure that those are private transactions. But it seems to me that the technology with artificial intelligence and various other things would enable them to distinguish what is truly illegal material, but it seems that they're unwilling to even make that step. 
Yeah, and, and the technology is really strong. You know, sometimes you'll hear um, people make false claims like, well, if they're scanning for child sexual abuse material, you know, if you just send a photo of your toddler, you know, in a diaper, mm-hmm. it's going to send you to the police and you'll be in prison for life. And right. that's just really not true. The technology is incredibly accurate. It's been being used internationally for years and years. And even if something is reported to law enforcement, then we have law enforcement due processes before anything ever gets to a law enforcement level. But but we see yeah. just by, you know, the millions and millions of cases that this is a serious problem. And I think that Unfortunately, Meta has seen these reports, obviously, knows that there's millions of these cases, sees that it's bad for their brand, and so they would rather close their eyes and make it impossible to find those statistics. What do parents need to know about this in terms of uh, ways that they can get involved and maybe uh, limit some of this material? I think it's so important to be speaking to your children regularly about online safety issues. You know, it can't be a one-time talk. Uh, It needs to really be ongoing. And everything from, you know, uh, content promoting suicide ideation and eating disorders, but especially, I think, Mm -hmm. conversations around sexually explicit content or requests to self-produce explicit content and share it, and the reality that studies have shown 89% of self-generated explicit content is shared with a third party, you know, sharing some of that information with minors is really, really important. Um, And trying to have a space where it's not um, a space of blame or shame if they have engaged or in sending things or receiving things or just seeing things online, but letting them know that it's unfortunately common, but it it shouldn't be. Um, So I think that's something that's really important for parents to do. But honestly, at the same time, we think so much more responsibility needs to be put on the platforms themselves to do more to address this. Because unfortunately, parents often are powerless because the platforms themselves are just creating avenues that allow predatory behavior, and they're not doing enough to stop it. But there is something that people can do uh, to hold Meta accountable. Tell us what uh, is available for our listeners at the uh, National Center on Sexual Exploitation. Yeah, so every year we have an annual Dirty Dozen list where we name 12 mainstream companies that facilitate sexual abuse and exploitation. Our new list is going to be coming out March 13th, uh, so please keep an eye out for that. You can get updates at endsexualexploitation.org. And the great thing about that is that we create easy ways for you to contact the companies. So you can send emails through a simple form. You can contact them on social media, and it's it's quite easy. But I would encourage you, even now, before the new Dirty Dozen list comes out, that you can reach out to Meta. You can send emails to their public email accounts um, tag their CEOs on social media, Mm -hmm. and it might feel like one or two messages like those don't make a difference, but we've seen time and time again in our advocacy with companies that it does make a difference. They're very sensitive to how their brand is being perceived, and if we are calling them out for blinding themselves to child exploitation issues through end-to-end encryption or not protecting all teenagers from explicit content or other harmful content on their platforms, it does make a difference, and especially Mm -hmm. when all of us do it together. So I really encourage people to use their voice that way. 
Very good. Good advice. Once again, the website is endsexualexploitation.org. Endsexualexploitation.org. We'll have that in the show notes today. Uh, Haley, thanks so much for your work with the National Center on Sexual Exploitation and, and showing us how to make a difference. Thank you so much. As Christian parents, it's common for us to talk about discipling our children, but when it comes to knowing how effective we are at it, that can be hard to tell. One man who's known for giving us hard data on worldview issues in the church has turned his research on what's really going on in our churches and our homes when it comes to discipleship. That man is Dr. George Barna. He's a professor at Arizona Christian University and director of research at the Cultural Research Center at Arizona Christian University. He's also the Senior Research Fellow at Family Research Council's Center for Biblical Worldview. His latest book is called Raising Spiritual Champions, Nurturing Your Child's Heart, Mind, and Soul. Dr. Barna, welcome to the program. Hi, Jeff. Thanks for having me. Most listeners are no doubt familiar with your research into worldview trends within the church, but people might not associate your research with what's happening in the minds and hearts of children. Why did you choose to write this book about discipling children? Well, the bigger issue for me and the reason I do all the research is because I believe that as followers of Jesus, we're called to be agents of transformation in our culture. And as I study what's going on in our culture one of the things that I naturally try to do is to figure out how do we get in the mess we're in and how do we get out of it. And we can give some superficial answers about, you know, they need Jesus. Well, yes, they do, yeah. but what does that look like? How do we do that? And and so for me, as I've been peeling back the, the, you know, the layers of this onion year after year after year, I've finally come to the conclusion that the real crisis in America today is a worldview crisis. Because every decision that every person makes every day of their life is based on their worldview. But then as I've been studying worldview, what I've come to discover is that a person's worldview starts developing at 15 to 18 months of age and is typically fully developed by the age of 13. And so that means those first 13 years of life are really where we determine who's this person going to be for their duration on the planet. And if we don't like what we're seeing in the culture, it's because of what the adults are doing. Mm. But the adults are doing what comes out of the worldview that developed when they were mere children. But one of the longitudinal studies I did, we, we tracked people over decades, and we found that most people died believing the same core things that they believed at the age of 13. So what we do with children is hugely important not just for that individual child who grows up to be an adult and a parent and a voter and a a follower of Christ or a rejecter of Christ, but for the culture itself. And and so that's why all of this attention I'm giving to children, because, you know, if you want to say, gee, I want the culture to get better, I want to leave a good legacy, I want to have an impact, this is how you do it, by paying attention to the worldview of children. 
It's amazing that the worldview would begin as early as 12 to 18 months. I never would have guessed that. On the, on the worldview issue, if you would define what a worldview is exactly and then how you quantify that because you're about numbers and hard data. So how do you put that into statistics with children? Yeah, uh, it, it's different, obviously, with children than adults. But, uh, you know, as we were measuring the, the worldview of children, oh, and to go back to your first question, what yeah. is a worldview? It, it's essentially the uh, intellectual, emotional, and spiritual filter that every individual creates for themselves mm-hmm. to help them understand and experience and respond to what's going on in the world around them. It's the, okay. it's the filter that helps us to make sense of the world and our lives within it. And so when we make decisions, it always goes through that filter. It goes through that set of core beliefs and the behaviors that come from those beliefs. One of the important things I've learned over the 40-plus years of doing research is you do what you believe. So what you believe really matters. Why? Because it's what determines how you live, the behaviors that define who you are. And, and it's the very same way when we think about Jesus. If you want to live like Jesus, well, what that means then is first you've got to believe what Jesus believed, because you do what you believe. And so getting people to be more Christ-like means that, okay, first we have to take a strong look and really invest heavily in what you believe as a child, because that's when your worldview develops, and that worldview isn't going to change over the course of your life, for the most part. So when we look at children and we measure that, we have these things we call the seven cornerstones of a biblical worldview. And what we did was, with a national sample of uh, 8 to 12-year-olds, we measured what they believe about those seven cornerstone beliefs. And these are just the very basics Mm -hmm. of biblical Christianity. You know, what you believe about God, what you believe about uh, whether or not you're a sinner, what you believe about what you can do about sin, what you believe about the Bible, what you believe about the existence of absolute moral truth, Mm -hmm. what you believe about how to define and pursue success, what you believe about your purpose in life. So those seven very basic questions form the foundation of every person's worldview. And what we discovered with adults is if you have a biblical point of view on all seven of those things, you then have an 83% probability of developing a full biblical worldview. Okay. But if you, if you reject even one of those seven elements, the probability drops to just 2%. Oh, my goodness. Wow. Yeah. I mean, it's astounding. This is one of the most amazing things I've seen yeah. in statistics in you know, more than four decades. Mm. And so okay. we developed these seven cornerstone beliefs, and, and, and the idea is if you can develop those as a child, then the probability of you developing a full biblical worldview is very strong, yeah. and you will live completely differently. Unfortunately, what we find is that among America's 8- to 12-year-olds today— because we just completed the research recently, what we found is that less than one per, excuse me, less than three percent have beliefs that would suggest they are thinking biblically okay. in relation to these seven cornerstones. Three percent. Mm. Now, it's not surprising when you look at only four percent of adults in America 
have a biblical worldview, and only 2% of the parents of children under the age of 13 have a biblical worldview. Mm -hmm. So it's right in line there, but man, that's not good. We've got to do, and we can do better than that. Now, you also studied church ministries, and in particular children's ministries, and how they contribute to a child's discipleship. What did you find in that research? Well, maybe the most discouraging thing was finding that only 12%, just one out of every eight children's pastors, has a biblical worldview. Why does that matter? Can't they run a great program otherwise? Yeah, they can run a good program, but they're not going to run a biblical program. You can't give what you don't have. You're not going to profess what you don't believe. And so when we find that seven out of every eight children's pastors really don't believe the things that Jesus believed, we know that the programs that they're going to put together and they're going to, you know, put energy and resources behind probably aren't the programs that are going to develop biblically solid children. So one of the things that I do in in the book, Raising Spiritual Champions, is try to help parents think through why are you bringing your child to church, and what is it that you're looking for? Because mm-hmm. as I did the research with parents, what I found is, well, most of them want a program where their children are going to be safe, and they're going to be happy, and they're going to meet other good kids. Right. But that, that's not what it should be about. Yeah. What we need to be looking at is what's being done to help introduce your child to Christ not just for the purpose of salvation, but also for sanctification. That is, that they'll live a life like Jesus. And to do that, you've got to have a biblical worldview so that the decisions that the child makes will coincide with the choices that Jesus would have them make. And so I have a chapter in the book where I talk about here's what to look for in a church that will facilitate that kind of, of children's ministry. You also studied actual patterns of discipleship within the home. Uh, In your research, what did you find in terms of the most successful patterns? Uh, What was working in the home? Well, there are a number of different things. One of the most important things is that not only should the parents themselves be disciples of Jesus, because, you know, there's an axiom that says disciples make disciples. And it turns out to be true. Mm-hmm. As I've been doing the national research, trying to find disciples and then study them, and when I asked them, how did you become a disciple of Jesus? Well, it, it was a disciple of Jesus who brought them through the yeah. process, who introduced them to Christ, and then worked with them on becoming more Christ-like. So, I mean, you've got to have that in place, where you are a disciple. But then secondly, as a disciple, what you're doing with your children, you've got to be totally consistent. You have to have a philosophy of parenting wherein all of the different things that you're doing, the principles that you're sharing, the behaviors that you're modeling, all that type of thing is consistent. Because when we talk to young disciples and we said, you know, in your generation, you're unusual because you love Jesus, you're trying to live like Jesus, praise the Lord for that. But how did you get there? You know, what did your parents do? That, that made such a dramatic impact on you for this. And what the, the most uh, consistent thing that we heard from the young adults who are disciples was my parents were consistent. Okay. They, they, you know, the principles that they taught didn't change. The way they taught them didn't change. I didn't always like it as a child, but I came to respect it 
because I saw it in their lives, and I heard them talking about it, and I know that they expected that of me, and eventually I came to understand why, and that's what made a big difference. Again, in the book, I've got you know a couple chapters that talk about what do effective disciple-making parents do, mm-hmm. but those are two of the two of the things that are so critical. It seems to me in, in reading some of the book that that there was a direct link between, say, a biblical principle uh, such as uh, discipline and explaining that from the Bible when that's going on, so that it was more than just a you know a theory or a feeling that yes we have to obey God, but they the parents actually took them to the scriptures and explained from the text why they were doing what they were doing. Does that raise it to the next level in terms of discipleship in your mind? Well, it really does, Jeff, on two points. One is that, first of all, it means the parent needs to know why they're doing what they're doing. And secondly, it means that they're willing to take their child into God's Word Mm -hmm. on a consistent basis and show them, you know what, this stuff isn't just a bunch of of rules that we need to learn. This is real-life guidance. These are the principles that God gave to us to show us how to be successful in life. Success isn't about your salary. It's not about your car. It's not about the square footage in your home. Uh, You know, one of the seven cornerstones is the best definition of success is consistent obedience to God. And so when, as a parent, you're consistently bringing your children into God's Word and showing them, look, the reason that I want you to do this or to think this or believe this or, you know, follow that is because that's what God tells us to do. God is always right. God is never wrong. He never lies. He never deceives. And He loves you. And the way that He shows you He loves you is by setting you up for success in life. Hmm. And He did that by displaying all of this in the Bible. That's why we read it. We're not doing this just to become scholarly theologians. There's nothing wrong with that, but that's not the end point. The end point here is to be someone who who loves and knows and honors and serves God with all their heart, mind, strength, and soul. And you cannot do that unless you know how he expects you to live. And so when I, as a parent, tell you what you're doing is wrong, it's not because it's based on my feelings. My feelings don't matter. What matters is God's principles. Let me show you why I say that it's wrong. It's right here in God's Word. It's here in this passage. Let's read it together and talk about how important this is for you. The book is titled Raising Spiritual Champions, Nurturing Your Child's Heart, Mind, and Soul, a fantastic resource. Uh, Get a copy for yourself. Get a copy for your pastor, your children's minister. It's loaded with tons of objective data, but it's written in a way that anyone can understand it. If you'd like to know more about Dr. George Barna or the book, you can visit the website RaisingSpiritualChampionsBook.com. That's RaisingSpiritualChampionsBook.com. And, of course, more on George Barna is at the website GeorgeBarna.com. Dr. Barna, congratulations on this 60th book that you've written. It's going to be a great blessing to the Church, and we appreciate your time today. Well, thanks so much, Jeff. I appreciate the opportunity to talk about it. It's such an important thing, and I really do believe that a lot of the future of the Church hangs on this. Next week on The Stand Radio, we'll hear about the persecution of believers in Russia and find out how to give them much-needed encouragement. And a former United Methodist Church pastor speaks out about the denominational split and gives advice to churches wanting to break away. 
Then, we'll learn how the left manipulates language to intimidate Christians' involvement in government. To hear today's program again or share it with someone else, visit AFR.net. And many of today's topics are featured in our monthly magazine, The Stand. Get your free six-month subscription by visiting AFA.net slash The Stand. I'm Jeff Shambly. Join us again next time here on The Stand Radio.